warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. It's Real Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies, with just a hint of professionalism. Another weekend, there's another storm on the horizon, it just seems to be a regular occurrence, almost as regular as my guest host here. It's my co-host Stephen, hello. Hello Matt, good to be on again, so soon after the last recording yesterday. We only recorded yesterday, it's becoming quite a habit between you and me. Um... Out, you know. They will do, as as is the habit between you, me, and our guest. It's Mark from the Good, the Bad, and the Odd podcast. Hello, mate. Hello, hello. I like to consider myself irregular. Ooh, <laughs> you can see a doctor. You can see a doctor <laughs> you about have to that. See the doctor about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Oh! <laughs> uh, it's been a few weeks since we were last together, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head what did we talk about last time the three of us were here. Oh my goodness! What you was put it me on the spot? What was it? It was play, sir. It play, was... Sir. was it play, sir? Oh, have we not done one since? I don't well, think we have, have uh, we? Uh, well, we did a Christmas one, but you put the Christmas one out before the play, sir, didn't you? So <laughs> I can't remember. Now. I can't remember. I feel like we've done one since then, but I think we it have. doesn't seem that long ago. Bit there. Anyway, it's it's good to have you back, mate. And it's it's another comedy this time. It is. And. I'm just going to say from the outset, he is one of my comedy heroes, this guy. It's Tony Hancock in one of the very few cinematic appearances that he made. Before we go into the review, I mean, are you guys, let's start with you, Mark. Are you a fan of Tony Hancock in general, the radio stuff, the TV stuff? Yes, I am, but I haven't seen or heard that much. You know, I haven't seen everything. Let's put it that way. I have listened to a fair bit of the radio and I've seen a fair bit of the shows, but I can't say it's exhaustive well actually you know what i think the radio stuff probably is exhaustive yeah um because i'm used to sort of sid james and bill kerr yeah uh but um it's uh the the tv shows not watched i've got the collection on my shelf yes uh in fact it's, it's like a double collection that's it, it comes I'll... in one box but it's a double collection. so i've got it to watch and i do like him uh, a lot a real yeah. lot but yeah. uh um my favorite thing he ever did was this film oh right uh, okay my favorite. Um, yeah, above the tv shows it's just so charming about this film that yes. i just really enjoy we're getting a lot of comments on facebook about this already about how people are so glad we're covering it it's about time we did and a bit of recognition for tony hancock so Stephen, are you familiar with the genius himself yeah i am again like you said, that I, you know, I've not delved into it in anywhere like you have. Mm. I know you're, you're um, I'm an obsessive, a completist, so. <laughs> a completist obsessive with it, and um, pretty much absorbed everything that he's ever done. Yes, um, I've, you know, every time I've encountered something of his, I've enjoyed it, and I have, you know, had a bit of a, a delve here and there. But there's certainly a lot of his work that um, is still untouched for me. Which um, probably is in some way some, an envious position oh, yes. um, in, in some way that I've you know I've still got that to discover. Yeah. Um, I'll direct yes, you absolutely. in the right the right direction for some of the um, the better episodes. There's a hundred radio episodes that are still out there. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll happily uh, pick up on those. But mm. yeah, yeah, I you know recognise his his talent and his his humour and his um, his influence as well, and, and enjoy his work uh, immensely. So um, again, you know this um, this film is one of the things that I most associate with him as far as identifying his oh, right. his humour because I'm most familiar with this route. You know, although I have heard the radio show and then seen some of the TV show. This is what I've seen most often. Okay. Um, and so, you know, like Mark says, I'm, I'm, this has a, a, spe- a more special place with regards to Tony Hancock than the rest of his stuff, just because I'm more familiar with it. Yeah, I think this movie was an introduction to Tony Hancock for our generation, because obviously by the time we were kids, he, you know, he, he passed away in 1968 and, and the radio show was long gone. And, uh, and I think it was the, 
as we say, the Sunday afternoon matinees or the bank holiday weekend screenings of the Rebel. Yeah that we would have seen him first of all, I think. Absolutely, um, yeah. And also at some point during our conversation, we have got to mention Galton and Simpson. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. A vital part of that man's success. So let's take a short break. I'm sure there is a, tra- there is a trailer out there because I watched it. Let's have a listen to the trailer. It's 1961. It's Tony Hancock and it's The Rebel. Goodbye! You. You represent... 14 years of sheer misery. Every man must find his own salvation. Live life as it's supposed to be lived. And you're choking me. You're choking me. You can go. You're choking me. An inner tumult that cries out against the humdrum ways of ordinary men. Choking me. A longing to release the raging fires within. This is the man you see before you. Hancock the Rebel. Hancock, the creator. Oh, you voluptuous Jezebel. My Aphrodite. Go on, I'm gonna win her here, mate. Here was an artist with a soul who sought escape and appreciation. And in Paris, that city of beauty and culture, he found it. Hancock! That's our protege, Mush. Can't you read? Tony Hancock as the rebel, the man who puts the left bank right. George Saunders as Sir Charles Brewer, patron of the arts, the man who discovers the wrong genius. Quite exceptional. I particularly like the texture of the hair. Yes, I rather like the hair. Those are feathers. I don't paint hairy birds. Paul Massey, the struggling artist who shares his attic studio with Hancock. I've had a canvas 12 foot by 8, filled in, framed and flogged before the first dab is dried. It's not like that with me. Every brush stroke is torn out of my body. Margaret Saad as a millionaire's wife with a hankering after Hancock. It's such a change day for young men in my arms. I've aged about five years in the last ten minutes. Look, do you mind if we sit down? My dogs are barking. And a host of other colourful stars. Dennis Price as a priceless surrealist. Irene Handel, the landlady who doesn't appreciate art. What's that? That is Aphrodite at the waterhole. It's disgusting. See Hancock, the action painter, in action. The Rebel, the Impressionist. And who else but Hancock would make such an impression? Is that Lois? Two bullets. One for you and one for me. Well, you can have fine as well, I know, particular. The Rebel, released in the UK, 19th of March, 1961, directed by Robert Day, starring, of course, Tony Hancock. We've got George Sanders here. There's Irene Handel. There's John the Missouri. of other famous faces that I'm sure we'll get a mention when we get to him. I'm not going to read out a synopsis. Do one of you guys want to just do a very brief summary of the plot? Well, I'm happy to. I'm yeah, happy to. A man just... who's five, uh, you know, and, and fed up completely fed up with it and he's got artistic aspirations <laughs> he's fed up with the philistines he finds in london and decides that paris is the place to go which seems like a good idea uh he, get, he almost immediately finds himself in the sort of parisian artistic milieu and everyone's really taken with him and he somehow by talking nonsense uh convinces them all he's like this great thinker uh, and yeah. not intentionally he's not being deceptive he really believes his own stuff um uh, until finally well not finally um he inherits some pictures from someone else and these get taken as great works of art uh, not his own work i stress and then he gets bound up in like the rich art world uh, until he gets finally uh, well, no, he reveals it himself, doesn't he? Because I can't yeah. do this anymore, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he reveals it's not him that created these works of art; it's someone else. Uh, and then he goes back to his life, well, but he's happier for it. It appears to me. I by think the end. so. I think so. I mean, we're all very familiar with this. I mean, we all watched this as kids, didn't we? I bet and, and enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. At, at yeah. that level, you know, it's one of those totally inoffensive, classic sixties, early sixties British comedies. 
that everybody is familiar with for some reason or another. It's, it's just one of those movies that was always about. Um, yeah. It just seemed to be shown every couple of months for some reason. The BBC always had the license for it. Um, I think they used to put it on on rotation with one of the old Doctor Who films if the cricket was rained off. Is that what it was? It was their Stuff emergency. Like that. I definitely remember. <laughs> you know, now we're showing the Rebel, and it's like yes, <laughs> <laughs> or Doctor Who, yes. <laughs> when you're a kid, yeah, yeah, it was, it was all we needed. Yeah, absolutely fantastic movie. I mean, you mentioning just briefly in that synopsis there, Mark, about. His almost of his delusions of grandeur, and he believes he's a great artist. The American title was "Call Me Genius." Yeah, it wasn't called the Rebel. Yes, it, uh, and the reason for that was there was a TV show on in the US called The Rebel, which I wasn't uh, aware of. Yeah, didn't know that at all. Yeah, so they renamed it, and the name didn't go down well. Apparently, Americans do not like things like "Call Me Genius." Uh, it's one of the reasons it didn't do well in America. It did great in the UK though, didn't it? Yeah, well, he was hugely popular. I mean, I might bore you throughout this whole conversation with my, <laughs> my knowledge of the history of Tony Hancock, but up to this point, 1961, as you guys are aware, he was hugely successful on the radio. There was over a 100, I think there were six or seven episodes of Hancock's Half Hour up to this point, and concurrently, towards the end of the radio series, the TV series was was happening on the BBC, but towards the late 50s, the early 60s, he was pushing away the people that had made him famous. He dropped Kenneth Williams a few years earlier because he didn't like the fact that he was getting the funnier lines and getting the laughs. He dropped Sid James the year before this was made because he was frightened he was going to be seen as a double act. It was just the Sid and Tony show at this point. And... Literally, just before filming this, he did his last TV series in the UK, which wasn't called Hancock's Half Hour. It was just called Hancock, because it was just him. And ironically, it was the series that produced the two best-known and best-loved episodes, which was the Radio Ham and the Blood Donor, which I'm sure Mm. you two are more than familiar with. Yeah. So it's at this point he decides to go into the big screen, even though he had appeared in Orders Are Orders about five or six years earlier. This was his first leading role. And he'd only make two or three more. Isn't there the Punch and Judy man after this? Yeah. That's the only one I know. I mean, right. This and the Punch and Judy man. He appeared briefly in Those Magnificent Men in the Flying Machines. Everyone. Did Everyone that, did. And, <laughs> and, and similarly in The Wrong Box. He had a cameo in that as well. Ah. So, not a massive sort of cinematic career. After making this particular movie, he wanted to hit America. He wanted to be, like, massive. He wanted to be international. So he asked Galton and Simpson to come up with a script. And what they wrote was a thing, I think it was called The Day Off. And if you buy the Blu-ray of The Rebel, which I bought myself last week, there is a replica of the script of this unfilmed movie. Hancock rejected it. He said, no, it's too parochial. It's too British. I need something more international. But ironically, he then goes and does The Punch and Judy Man, which is probably the most quintessentially British movie he could have made. So he severed his connections with Galton and Simpson at this point, the early 60s. They go on to write Steptoe and Son, and the rest is history. <laughs> so, Yeah, um, unbelievable decision-making that was. Yeah, and then literally seven years after this, he was found dead by uh, a overdose, I think it was, in Australia. And he was only 44 years old. You know, it's a tragic, tragic story. And had he had he lived, had he have been a happier man, you know, without these incredible bouts of depression and permanently seeking the perfect comedy formula, that's what he was striving for. He was always besotted by what made people laugh, what made things funny. And he was permanently seeking this, this secret of comedy, coupled with his, his alcohol addiction. It's it's just a tragic story, and I believe that had he survived, he could have been one of those great elder statesmen of, of British comedy, like we sort of hold like Ronnie Barker in such esteem, or somebody like that. Had he lived to his sixties or his seventies, you know? Yeah, but the Pythons. Mm. he on on um, it was an influence on Ronnie Barker. I believe um, he would have been, mate. Yeah, because apparently um, there was uh, Ronnie Barker said about it that um, one of the things that inspired him to get into um, pursuing a career within comedy 
was that he saw um, Tony Hancock um, in Panto um, in Blackpool. Really? And uh, inspired him. Yeah, it was an inspiration there. He did a lot of um, sort of live work, you know, after the war. He was in Enter during the war, I believe, and then... Yeah, he did all the usual radio shows like Family Favorites and not Family Favorites. Can't remember what it was, you know. But all those sort of classic comedy shows. And he was in Educating Archie, and and it, radio was his home, you know. And then he he made it big on TV. He was one of the first British TV comedy stars. He had his own sitcom. I think he was the first, you know, UK comedian to to achieve that. So his legacy can't be denied. No, and I think I remember reading that. At the time of, of Hancock's half hour, particularly when it was, you know, at its height, um, you had a situation where all the all the pubs and and chip shops and restaurants and everything were were basically abandoned because everybody, you know, went home for half an hour to to listen to the to the show. You'd you know you'd find the the streets deserted. Can you imagine um, that now? A radio show clearing the streets and the pubs. It'd never happen. No, Not even a TV show now, would it? You, those yeah. days are I mean, time. this phenomena first happened with... It's a kind of phenomena in British TV of... Uh, radio and TV of certain things clearing pubs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think Quatermass was uh, uh, one of the ones that yeah. did it first. You know, and landlords, canny landlords would get a TV going in the pub <laughs> to, to make sure no one left. Keep the pub. Uh, stuff like, yeah. Which is a great idea. Um, and I bet a few enterprising landlords did the same for this, right? Because it was so popular. I, I bet they did. Yeah. So this is the first real starring role for him on the big screen. It's in colour, which we wouldn't have been used to seeing Tony Hancock in colour. You've got Gordon Simpson behind it. You've got a lot of famous faces, like I say, Jean Le Measure and, and Irene Handel. What, yeah. can, what can go wrong? Nothing, as far as I'm concerned. So. <laughs> I'd say it's very unusual it's in colour, uh, mm. actually, because almost every British comedy you can think of around this era was black and white. In fact, every British film was black and white. It felt, I always felt like the James Bond films was the real start of a lot. Of, apart from... I don't know, when was Lawrence of Arabia? That was a little 62, late, was it? 62, next year. Right, yeah. okay. I feel like James Bond started in 62 as well. So this was before The Hose. And I'm yeah. thinking maybe peeping to... Oh, The Archers. Sorry, The Archers were the big exception, right? Of course, They yeah. would have done all sorts of colour yeah. way before this. But it wasn't but most the norm, was it? British uh, cinema was black and white, wasn't it? Yeah, especially comedies. It wasn't the norm to have a a colour comedy, to, to, to have that extravagant expense on colour film. On, on a just a comedy, you know, it's not high art as such. But I just like the fact that this takes Tony Hancock out of that miserable railway cutting setting that we're used to, even mm. though he's playing that sort of downtrodden character. But then just giving him, you know, when we took, we spoke about sitcoms before, guys, when they get the the big screen treatment, so they they go off to a different location. Like I being served went on holiday, Steptoe got married, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. This is very similar. It's giving us a chance to see. The downtrodden Tony Hancock that we've learned to love over the past five, six, seven years, and send him off to Paris and, and spend a bit of money on actually telling a different story. And, and George Sanders, who's a massive star, is in this as well. You know, so yeah, it's amazing, and it worked. It yeah. worked. So talk us through it. I mean, the, the the opening scene in the railway carriage. Now, I could have pictured that as a one of the TV sketches probably that had been written and thought, do you know what, we could use this somewhere. Well, that's something I could imagine you doing. What, me um, sitting on the train in the morning? Well, well I can imagine <laughs> you going over onto the uh, alternate platform and, and cutting through <laughs> one train onto the other um, in order to get a seat. I can imagine you figuring that out and standing there for a while thinking, hmm. And then, uh, There's a way around this, yeah. Yeah. The other way you've yeah. got around it is just getting on the train before anybody else is awake. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's that's as you say that is very much sort of a TV sketch. It is. Uh, it's it's sort of a two Ronnies type thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's, you could see that as a, and it's typical Galton and Simpson as well. You know that monologue thing, um, and it just gives you an introduction. There was a couple of famous faces there as well. The guy he was sitting next to whose name I can't remember for the life of me. Appeared oh, he's in, in everything, isn't yeah. he? Yes, I he, can't remember his name. He appeared in a lot of the TV stuff. He's in the Blood Dome, mm. definitely, and I can't remember, he's the one in the lift, you know. there's uh, Hugh, Hugh something, I'll, I'll look it up. In a I second. was thinking Hugh, yeah. yeah, but I can't remember his name. Hugh Lloyd, 
Could be, not too sure. I think that sounds right. Yeah. And for that scene always, I really enjoyed that scene because I used to actually get a trade to school. Yeah. Uh, and it was just like that platform. And I do remember men with bowler hats yeah. reading the Financial Times. Yep. And, and, and you know, broadsheets in the in the carriages <laughs> and having to put your arm out to get out the thing. Slam doors. How dangerous were those slam door trains? Yes. You could never yeah. do that now. And then we go into this superbly sort of choreographed piece in the office that just, without saying a word, it just highlights the monotony and the boredom of his job, that everybody is in sync doing the same thing. Um, I did like the fact the manager went to the trouble of changing the umbrella round so they all lined up. His one (laughs) umbrella was in a slightly different way uh, and and gave him a sort of, Gave him some daggers and yeah. then went in the office. That did make me laugh. Highlights the fact that he's the rebel, you know, because he just can't even do that right. And it's great to see John the Measurer, pre-Dad's Army as well, in this in this particular scene. As, as the man you know what? Was, Funny enough, mm. I, I, I only with this watch should I make a connection of thinking, you know what, Tony Hancock uh, seems to be a bit of a basis to Captain Mannering. Um, only because John Lemessurier was in the scene, and he's not at all like Wilson, you know. No. It was nothing like that, but no. it just made me realise, my, you know, Captain Manorin is just doing Tony Hancock in a lot of the way he acts. The pompous that, end yeah. of the, uh, yeah, like we said, the pomposity, the delusions of grandeur is is Hancock all over, isn't it? And that is Captain Manorin, yeah. You know, thinking he's got a, you know, he's he's so important, but he's just a, a lowly bank manager in charge of a home guard card platoon. The next scene, I'm not going to go through this scene by scene, but there's certain things I want to just bring up. But the next scene has always stayed with me since I was a child. And it is the sculpture. In Oh, is it, doesn't the coffee shop happen before then? Is that, or is it afterwards? I think it's after. It's afterwards. afterwards. Okay, yeah. my mistake. My yeah, mistake. It, it goes back and... Please remind me, what's the name of the sculpture, sculpture guys? Uh, Aphrodite at the watering hole. <laughs> I want, I want to get a T-shirt or something made up with that statue on it. Well, can I give a little context to watching this film this time? Because it has some relevance to art and stuff. Um, I actually watched this with my daughter, who's doing her A-levels at the minute, and okay. art is one of them. Yeah. And I said, you can watch this film, you'll find, mind it, find it interesting. Mm. And we are now quoting the lines at each other, and I'm kind of saying, you should do that as, you know, oh, as part of <laughs> Recreating Aphrodite at the watering hole as, as your A-level project. That would be yeah. so cool. That um, would be amazing. And I've also said, next time mum's in the room and she's doing a self-portrait, I'm going to go up to her and say, what's that? And she's like, self-portrait. And I'll say, who of? And just see what my wife's reaction is. Oh, Andy. What's this horrible thing? That is a self-portrait. Who of? Laurel and Hardy. Who of? Buffoon. Yeah. Now that is typical Tony Hancock response, isn't it? Self-portrait, ooh, of Lauren Hardy. So, Stephen, what do you think of this beginning part, mate? The whole opening introduction to his, to his and his artworks all around the walls as well, his self-portraits and stuff. It's, is, is that one of the scenes that sticks with you from your original viewings as a kid, mate? Because that's certainly how I remember this movie. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously the, the Paris bit is... Um, it's a big part of this film, but this beginning part where he's in his, you know, in his um, sort of his little flat thing, and the landlady is moaning at him and doing the typical uh, British landlady thing, come, you know, asking for the rent, and him having all the all his um, his rudimentary works of art around his his room, and particularly the, particularly I think it was the bit where he comes home. Mm-hmm. And he comes through the door and he, he's chucking off his jacket and his bowler <laughs> hat and stuff and he puts on his artist's smock and his beret, which he adjusts in the mirror very carefully. And then he walks into the next room and it's, it's his grand studio bedroom. <laughs> um, and uh, that that bit where he's, he's, he's taking on this persona as the real him, um, which I think is, is quite quite funny really yeah. so that does that does stick with me i mean I, you know i went to art school so um, a lot of this <laughs> film um sort of makes me laugh on a, on a on a level of um the pretension anyway were there characters so, like that at art school not to that level i'm, I'm, I'm assuming but oh i bet they were to that level I bet <laughs> oh, were. yeah yeah there were there were there were people maybe not people to that level who um 
who were so awful but thought they were so good, but there was certainly plenty of people who thought they were good and weren't really as good as they thought they were. In fact, majority, um, including me. Um, and um, no, I think I was the I was I was always the other way. I was the 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 irony of this is that Hancock in real life was was a genius, but always like didn't think he was good enough. Yeah. Whereas in this film, he's playing the opposite. He's think he's somebody who's got no talent, but actually thinks he's brilliant. I think that this art school and the way that people come out with all sorts of just nonsense um, to explain their own art is um, is something that is very much grounded in reality, which is what this film's picking up on. So, um, you know, I can recognise that as an art school boy. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you uh, what. That's a, that's a great insight, by the way. It is the mirror image of his, you know, his real persona, this is. Yeah. It? But he, he does it so well. Yeah. He does it so well. Yeah. And, and the, bit I particularly like about this entire scene is that whole interaction between him and Irene Handel who does that she almost does that posh voice but there's always that underlying cockney underneath it and she tries to come up with with fancy words and it's all like these malapropriisms isn't there that she comes up with I'm gonna have to play a little clip of it because she just has some golden pieces of script in this when she's arguing with him about you know because it's the first time she's actually seen what's going on in her lodgings basically yeah, it's, it's horrible it's, it's horrible, horrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah she she'll say ages where there shouldn't be ages yeah. and not pronounce where there should it's all that kind of stuff right yeah what are you hammering you know i don't allow alterations to my property i'm well aware of that this doss house hasn't been touched since about 1850 you're waiting for the grant from the national trust aren't you now go on push off i'm busy i don't want any lip i demand to know what you're hammering this is a respectable guest house. I've got a right to know what's going on in my own rooms. What I do in my room is no concern of yours. I pay my rent. Only if I sit outside your door. What about this week's for a start? You let me in, pay me my rent. You stay here, I'll get it. See? Nosy, there's nothing here. What's in there? Nothing. You keep out of there. Oh! What's that? What's what? That, that great ugly thing here. Great ugly thing? That is Aphrodite at the waterhole. What's he doing in here? Get it out of my house! Get it out of my house! It's not doing any harm, it's a work of art. Look, she's beautiful. I will not have these hawking great lumps of stone in my apartment. A flaming cheek. She's right above my bed, she is. Supposing she fell through the floor. Sometimes I wish... Look, Mrs. Clever. How did you get it up here in the first place? I brought it up the stairs. It's in 15 bits held together with iron rods. Got it from the breakers' yards. A head is the foundation stone from the dog and duck up the road. A left leg's a bit of the old war memorial. And the rest of it is made up of six chunks of town hall, two bits of railway bridge and a lump of the public library. It's disgusting. What is it? It's a nude. It's not nice. It's got no clothes on. But of course it hasn't got any clothes on. She's a nymph. What's the point of coming up out of a water hole with clothes on? Oh, you're impossible, madam. I've got no time for naked women without any clothes on. They're lewd. My dear good woman, artists have been painting and sculpting nude women since the beginning of time. Nude modelling is a very respectable profession these days. Here, have you been having models up here? Have there been naked women in my establishment? Of course there haven't. I can't afford 30 bob an hour. I did that from memory. That is women as I see them. Oh, you poor man. Oh, fancy knocking around with women like that. I wonder what your kids will look like. Look, I'm not one of the realist school of art. I'm an impressionist. Well, it don't impress me. I think it's vile and plural. And I want it out of the house. And I want my stepladder back. Look at it. It's all a load of miscellaneous rubbish. Before we go into the Paris scene, because we've already mentioned Jean Le and... Irene Handel, I'm going to hand you over to the curator of the Village Hall of Fame just for an update um, as to if there's any inductees in this movie. Over to you, Stephen. Well, uh, we've, we've got some amazing, amazing list here of, of people who are... <laughs> Is it get, um, getting out of control? Is it? <laughs> well, it's people who are, who are, you know, the reappearances and, and things. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, we've already got the likes of... Um, 
you know, Victor Harrington, we're already aware that, you know, he's already on a, a now is his ninth appearance, <laughs> the, the top <laughs> the top man in the Hall of Fame has, has, has scored another hit. Do we know who um, he was in this, by the way? Without, hmm? Do we know who he was in this movie? Because he normally plays man at bar, or was he probably uh, one of the guys man on, on the train? I was going to say, was he one of the guys on the train? <laughs> Un- uncredited, but man on train. And do you know what? Yeah. To this day, I still could not tell you what he looks like. Even though he's been in nine movies that we've reviewed, I would not be able to pinpoint Victor Harrington. Steve, uh, Mark, if you've been listening to recent podcasts, you might not have done because they may not have gone out at this point. Stephen has meticulously gone through the Hall of Fame, checking facts and figures and appearances and stuff like this. Oh, I hear it in every episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's yeah, happened yeah. now is that Stephen's done a re-examination. And we found that who we thought was top of the tree was Marianne Stone, Cyril Chamberlain and people like that. <laughs> There's this guy called Victor Harrington who we just didn't even spot. And he's appeared in nine out of 62 movies that we reviewed. <laughs> and nobody knows who he is because he just appears as man in pub or man on train, something like that, man reading newspaper. So we're going to have to find a photo of Victor Harrington and, and just identify him from now on so he's definitely in this that's one so again weird. Mate, isn't it? it's, it's so great. weird it's like that there's that one guy that's in almost every original star trek episode that no one's aware of <laughs> until you actually watch out for him he's an english actor yeah uh, but yeah there is one but i can't remember his name but oh, it, wow. it, it's the same kind of thing that's yeah i've seen a picture of him and i kind of recognize him but i can't place him in anything i don't think he's ever had a speaking role or a, a major part in anything certainly not in what we've covered so far right so Stephen, who else have we got so, to add? so yeah we've also got um jerry judge and heimer beckley mm. um who were both on their seventh appearance <laughs> ken who are they <laughs> exactly. This is, this, is what I've, this is what I discovered. There's loads of people that we just don't know who the hell they are, and they've just been quietly. I mean, they've just walked past in the background, going from one set to another. Do you know? Um, there's, there's probably on the same some. Film that, there's probably some sort of university thesis we could write about this. This is a phenomenon that nobody has been aware of all these years. That there's this underlying current of British talent that's appeared in thousands of movies between them. And nobody knows them. It's incredible. <laughs> this has got, yeah, this it, has got it is. I mean, there's um, George Holcroft. He's been in six of the things <laughs> that we've watched. Who's George Holcroft? Um, uh, Juba K- uh, Kennersley yeah. um, in five appearances now. Okay. Um, um, obviously, uh, the, the, the wonderful Irene uh, Hand yeah. that we've just mentioned. Uh, this is her fourth appearance Excellent. now. Excellent. Um, so that's that's really down. But there are two new entries into um, the Hall of Fame. Okay. Um, there's Marie Burke, mm-hmm. who was previously in Lavender Hill Mob and, and um, Legal Gentleman. She played the French landlady. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then there's Peter Bull, um, the ah. Lavender Hill Mob and Screwed previously. He was the um, the exhibition creator who said, oh, I've been doing this for 30 years when he was criticised about the lighting right. in, the, in the exhibition and, and stuff. Okay. So, um, so, yeah, they're the, the new inductees and then they're... they're the repeat offenders who've been um, in who, the unknown faces who've been in so many of these films. Um, we don't really have a, a clue who they are, but they, they have. The other thing about this is that um, this is, I think this is our first um, first appearance. Wait, well, it's our second appearance for Liz Fraser. Is that um, only? I was going to ask about she, Liz Fraser yeah. because she's not been any carry ons yet, but she was in uh, Dunkirk. A very big so, part in that, yeah. So yeah, so she's only um, only just appeared in that. Obviously, uh, John Lamezia as second appearance as well. Surprisingly, um, again, yeah, yeah. So um, and hold on, I think there was another there was another repeat offender actually. Just um, not Mario Fabrizzi, was it in the coffee shop? Because he appeared in everything that Tony Hancock ever did and some other movies. He was, quite, you know, the guy with the big moustache, the Italian-looking guy in the coffee shop. And you know what? No, there was another. There was another inductee. It was Mervyn Johns. Oh, Mervyn um, Johns, we've seen before. Yes, yes, it, yes. Yeah, we've seen him before, and he's finally made it in. Okay. But um, the weird thing was talking about people in coffee shops and all this kind of stuff. This is the first appearance um, that we have on this podcast um, of Oliver Reed. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, that's pretty epic. Uh, that guy in the coffee shop. Just want to go back to Mer- Mer- what's his name, Mario Fabrizzi. Yeah. Uh, watching this, I thought. I, I, it was weird because I haven't seen the film in a few years. I watched it and I always remember it being played by Harry Fowler. Oh, 
Oh. He just looks a bit like Harry Fowler. Yeah. And it wasn't. So it's like that's not Harry Fowler. Yeah. I'm sure Des- it was Harry. Despite his um his Italian sounding name, he has got that East End Cockney accent, Mario Fabrizi, the same as Harry Fowler. He sounds did, like Harry Fowler. Yeah. As well. Can I just go back to Peter Bull? Yeah. We need to say hello to one of our listeners, Stephen. Stephen Bull is the grandson of Peter Bull. Wow, that's great. I've met Stephen about three or four times now because he's also one of the contributors and the listeners to the Talking Pictures TV official podcast, which I'm part of. And he turns up regularly to the meetings and tells us some fascinating stories about his granddad. His, His grandfather passed away when he was about 14, so he never really said that he appreciated, you know, what work he actually did. And he said he went to the funeral. Um, I'm sure Stephen won't mind me saying this. He said, he, I went to the funeral and he said, and if I'd have paid any attention, he said, to the people that were there, it would have been a who's who of British acting, comedy, whatever, legends were all present at his grandfather's funeral. And he tells us these fascinating stories about his grandfather's love for teddy bears and things like that. And um, it's, it's great. Stephen listens to all the shows and he's becoming a dear friend of, of everybody involved in the Talking Pictures TV podcast. So congratulations, mate, your granddad's in the um, Village Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And, and yeah, um, your, your grandfather um, certainly has made his mark upon British cinema, yeah. so uh, it well deserves the famous attention face. that he's, he's yeah. getting. Very yeah. famous face when you look at Peter Boy. He was in a lot of things, wasn't he? I think he was. was. It was often playing in like Victorian kind of dramas or comedies set in that, that kind of era as well, pretty, wasn't he? Uh, sure I think he I remember him in an old film called Lock Up Your Daughters. Okay. I'm sure he was um, in Oliver, wasn't he? Wasn't he the... Um, the oh. Be- oh, not in Oliver. Oh, was he? I think. He I might, mean, Harry yeah. said it was in a different version of Oliver. I'm sure yeah. you said the Victorian stuff. It's something like that. I remember him from mainly. Yeah, it's the Beadle, right? But mm. obviously, that was Harry Seacombe. Yeah, but. or he might have been. The, wasn't the judge? Might have been a policeman. Something. Anyway, he was definitely in those sort of Victorian dramas. But yeah, great to see him inducted because we've got a link to one of our listeners, which is always good. So yeah, it was in uh, 1948, Oliver. Twist, uh, landlord of the Free Cripples, a pub called the Free Cripples. Right. <laughs> <laughs> nice, uh, and it was also in the Lavender and Mob. He says, "There you go." So that's how he got inducted in today. Mm. Um, we hit France at this point, and you mentioned Oliver Reed. Yes, uh, yeah, it was amazing to see Oliver Reed, uh, and it also made me think that how much Hammer was using the same actors, because Oliver Reed was obviously in uh, The Curse of the Werewolf, yes. and Paul Massey, Paul, who we've not get to yet, yeah. was in was was the star of Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll. He was, and there was a couple of other comedies, because I thought mm. Paul Massey, I thought he'd been in a lot more. Um, Me too. Yeah, but when you look at his filmography, there's not a great deal there, and I think the only thing I can remember him, apart from the Hammer film, I think there's a comedy called Raising the Wind or something like that where he's a student at a music school and it's got Leslie Phillips and Liz Fraser and all those particularly famous faces that we talk about in a day in, day out. Yeah, um, he, he, I felt like he should have been had a bigger career. Yeah. He was very good. Yeah, and I... Well, I, I recognised him from Sapphire. That was the other one, Sapphire. Yeah. That was the big one, which we will be covering in a couple of weeks' time. Oh, hopefully. yes, yes. <laughs> but that was it. There, there, there aren't many movies on his filmography when you look at IMDb. And as you said, Mark, that, you know, perhaps he should have been a bit more of a, a bigger, more recognised star because yeah, that whole group of... Wasn't there another famous face amongst that group of artists? I'm trying to remember. There's definitely Oliver Reed in there. There's Paul Massey. Um, it was an American dude that looked familiar. Yeah. I can't remember. Um, yeah. I mean, Paul Massey's... Is he is Canadian? Is he? But he sounded English to me. Yes, or I always thought he was English. Actually, yeah. Well, they said he was born in Canadian, Ontario. Yeah, mm. but I know amongst the um, amongst amongst the sort of existentialist girls and stuff, I know there was um, Nanette Newman. Was she? Was she there? Yeah. You didn't recognise Nanette Newman. Nanette Newman. I, I probably oh spotted God. her at some point, but then I'm always on the lookout for Marianne Stone in every uh, movie. Yeah, Marianne Stone. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, man, I've always been in love with Annette Newman. And so I think this is the first film I saw her in. Yeah, it would have been would have been because I think she was probably married to Brian Forbes about this time, and then appeared in every single Brian Forbes movie that was ever made. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, 
And it's at this point, this is where the confusion happens, isn't it, about the artwork, because Paul Massey is becoming disillusioned with his whole career as an artist. And doesn't he take Tony Hancock back to his studio and he's got these fantastic works of art? Um, yeah, yeah, really good. He's, really he's so disillusioned that he, he buys um, Hancock's nonsense that he's putting together about, you, you know, you, you colours the wrong shape and, <laughs> and that kind of... And, and he's using all the buzzwords when he's reviewing his, his paintings in the, the Garrett um, loft studio. Yeah. Um, and he's he's just putting together all these buzzwords that mean nothing when put together without something else to them. Uh, but he's like, you know, he's just buying it because he's so insecure and, and disillusioned about his own talent. He just buys it as that this guy knows what he's talking about, um, you know, inhabiting the chair and like what it feels like to be wood and all that, you know. And um, yeah, he, he thankfully takes him in, and then there's this um, the, the the duality between you know a talent that's got no um, got no confidence in their ability and and a lack of talent that's got an immense <laughs> confidence in their ability, um, and how that then plays out. So Paul Massey is really the analogue of the real Tony Hancock, isn't he, in this, in many ways. Um, You know, he's got talent, uh, but he despairs. um, Yeah. And and he's meeting someone who's the opposite uh, and doesn't realise it, kind of thing. Um, I really like, I mean, I think it shows some quality in the Gordon Simpson script that they they do have, you know, there's certain phrases used that recur later in the script. We get callbacks to them that are being thrown back and, and it's very cleverly done. You know, there's stuff like Hancock later on, Tony Hancock repeats stuff that Paul said to him. Yes. And everyone's listening to depth. And one looks at each one, some of the artists look at each other and says, I, I remember Paul saying something like this. And, <laughs> and they said, Paul's picked up a lot from our friends. You know, and it's like, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, um, Galton and Simpson. I mean, it's it's the combination of that superb writing team and Hancock's delivery. His timing was impeccable, particularly on the radio shows. You know, he, he just knew how to pause for the perfect length of time to get the right reaction, and it was unstoppable. That that trio. You know, it has created some of the finest comedy this country's ever produced. And it's evident here, and it's a shame that he, he threw that away. Because I think he could have gone on to so much more, probably got the international success that he craved had he stuck with Gordon and Simpson. Yeah. I think it was, uh, it feels like a case of he needed to prove to himself he was the, he was the genius. Yes. So I was disposing of anyone around him that kind of fed into that was his way of trying to prove to himself that it wasn't not him. Yeah, it wasn't a team <laughs> effort. Something it was all like that. Yeah. yeah. Tortured soul. I mean, there's some great biographies out there. Cliff Goodwin wrote a massive great tome, and it's, it's really fascinating. It goes right back to his childhood, right up to the day he died. Um, mm. And it's, it's certainly worth a read. Uh, at what point, guys, do we get the scene with the bike and the cow? Uh, well, it's after it's after he he gets introduced to all the beat poets, right? So, yeah. firstly, he, he starts living with Paul, and he kind of influences Paul. He says things like, "Give me a color and a shape," you know, and it's like a pink triangle. He goes, "Yeah, I like a fishbone off that, and a, and a warship be great." And and Paul's talking about he's a tortured soul, and every stroke is painful. And he goes, yeah. "No, I just knock him out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just give me a colour and stuff like that." But I've I think done by lunch. I've sold it before the paint's dry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's really. And we get some scenes of him around Paris painting stuff, and people look at this thing like they can't believe yeah. it. Knocked over by a car because he's exactly <laughs> in the middle of the road. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's after he goes to the party. He the party's something. Yeah comes back from the party and that's when he um it's the next next sort of after then he because he's seen the action painting on the um wall and initially when he's gone in he's slagged it off and then when he's on his way out of the party he's he, he sort of has changed his tune is saying about how you know how interesting it is and artistic and and stuff oh i might have a go at one of them um <laughs> and then somehow he gets it he, he ends up with a cow as well um Incredible. Yeah, because the other bloke, but Dennis Price's character has yeah. a cow, doesn't he? Which he keeps in the bedroom, which is like, I don't even want to know what's going on there. Um, 
But I like the fact that it gets into the party because uh, Paul's got this friend Josie, who's you know a got got. I don't know if they're goths back then or whatever yeah. they are, but it's Danette Newman, and they're all all of the females she knows look like her, and all of the blokes you know they've all got like little beards and black jumpers, and Beat it's me. very funny. Mm. That was that situation, wasn't it, when they sat in the big circle listening enraptured to Hancock talking about how he couldn't do the the rap race anymore because you know everybody was there dressed the same and doing exactly the same and and thinking the same and they're all sat around agreeing with each other that they could never be like that when they're all looking exactly the same um that so that, yeah that was a bit. and i spotted uh, another famous face among those girls and i'm not even sure she's credited jean marsh was in there was she, marsh. she is in there yeah she's um She's one of the girls. One of the girls, and you yeah. Just, you just mentioned earlier, and I forgot he was in it, was Dennis Price as well. And surprisingly, yeah, he's... Yeah, Dennis Price. Yeah, he's not in the Hall of Fame yet, Dennis on Price. His second, <laughs> yeah, on his second appearance. Bloody yeah. incredible. There's a, there's a Hancock radio show called The Poetry Society. And, yes. And, and yeah. it's very similar to that. You know, he gets these sort of beatnik poets around his house to, to read their sort of pretentious poetry. And, and one of them, similar to the uh, Nanette Newman character, he's played by Fenella Fielding. Um, and, oh yeah, yeah, and voice, the other one's yeah. Warren Mitchell, and it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant episode. So where do we go after the cow and the? Um, is it is it George Sanders? You know, organises the exhibition at this point. Now is that where we got to? George Sanders turns up, doesn't he? He wants to have a look at the world. But I just got to say that the whole cow painting <laughs> sequence was really wonderful. It was funny, you know. It was doing flamenco. There was good use of music. Yeah, you know the compliment there. And uh, he got the bicycle out, and I actually really like that painting. <laughs> yeah, I wonder whatever happened to that. Could you imagine if oh, that man, was available? Yeah, I'd somewhere. have that. I'd have that yeah. on the wall. If, uh, yeah. In fact, I was tempted. I said to my daughter, "Should we do this? Should we get a big canvas out in the garden and just throw paint about?" <laughs> and she said, cow. "Yeah." <laughs> it's, it's one of those scenes that we remember as as watching it as a kid. I think because it is yeah. the the comic action part of the proceedings. Um, Fantastic, wearing like a yellow sou'wester and a and a hat and the welly boots and things like that. Uh, he just he just doesn't. I just like the fact he brings such a mundane, not mundane. He just brings a working class thing to this pretentious stuff yeah. in a really natural way. It's just funny. Like for example, the girl, the girls when he first meets Josie, she says stuff like, I, "I'm I'm an existentialist." Uh, you know why live today when you can die tomorrow and all this all my friends are existentialists and he just goes yeah well it's company for you isn't it (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing like it shouldn't be funny at all but it's it's the the, I think the lasting comedy in this I mean there's funny the funny scenes but I think the lasting comedy in this is all these sort of almost throwaway like lines that Mm. he's saying which you know, when I originally watched it as a kid, I didn't pick up on any of these things that he was saying in between other bits of I've seen going on, other people talking. But they're the bits that now are making me laugh every time. You know, watching it, the, the, those little little lines that he's saying, the two or three word responses to what somebody else is saying or yeah. doing. Yeah, they're just the sides. You could kind of sit in the DNA of things like The Office now, right? And things like yeah. that. You, you know, know where what? people where they kind of pseudo documentaries they're doing Tony Hancock stuff I thought I thought David Brent and Alan Partridge have got a lot to thank this man for oh yes the thing is different aspects of Hancock precipitate different ways like there's the the straightforward glum delivery stuff but there's also the pomposity which crystallises in a more extreme form so like Basil Fawlty and the anger of like Victor Meldrew you know but also the plot line the plot line's quite familiar as well when you think of somebody who thinks they're creative somebody who thinks they've got something to offer and then they mislead those genuine talented people or people misinterpret what's said i mean have you seen being there with peter sellers where yeah chance the gardener's words are mistaken for words of wisdom you know and it's mm. it's quite a familiar plot and it's we've seen it possibly prior to this and we've certainly seen it in movies afterwards but this is yeah. Definitely the funniest example of that particular trope, isn't it? Yeah, I, li- I like both of those films. You know, the character is not deliberately misleading, although no. they're just. Uh, and that pomposity is a British, well, no, actually, British and American sort of trope. Uh, mm. yeah, a kind of W.C. Fields yes. and Ed Kennedy and 
certainly Will Hay earlier, mm-hmm. you know, co- comic Will Hay has this kind of thing too. Yeah. So there's a definite DNA through, I think, Western comedy actually. Yeah. I think there's, really... a, there's a there's a this is unusual. Um, in the comedies of the time, though, in that the, there's no villain of the piece. There's usually somebody um, who's yeah. um, the, the, mm. the smarter, richer, better-looking villain, villain who's wanting to um, unseat or um, screw over um, the the little man, as it were, in in the piece. Whereas in this. You know, even the George Sanders character, you know, is, is not a villain. He's he's just doing, you know, trying to do the, the what he does as a job. He's not actually trying to screw anybody over. He's actually trying to help in some ways mm. as an agent. Um, the you know the only villain that Hancock has is is himself. I know, um, it's his own worst enemy, definitely. Well, the only person but, um, that's against him in any way in this in this movie is Irene Handel, kicking him out of his room at the beginning. That's about uh, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, okay, the, the the guy who's who thinks his wife's um he's trying to run off with his wife is <laughs> no but he still buys his, all his paintings for fifty thousand yeah. um dollars. So you know, he's not too upset with him and too much <laughs> against him. So yeah, there's 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 unusually there's no you know, you have a lot of films from this area, you've got the the um you know, normal wisdoms and etc. where mm. you, you've got a, a, a villain as somebody who's trying to buy the children's home or, you know, some nefarious activity like that. And there's nobody who actually is necessarily a villain in, in this. It's, it yeah. is just the, the misunderstanding sort of snowballing. There's yeah. a mark of the clever writing of Galton Simpson, I think, that they don't have to rely on conflict of that nature to create yeah. a comedy. In fact, there's a bit of that conflict, isn't there, with the uh, the the husband, the husband with the 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 wife that's got her eye on him. The husband, mm. the husband who always looks a bit stabby to me. He looks like he's going to stab someone. Um, but that's the bit, the weakest for me, the weakest section of the film. Even though I still like it mm. because it removes him from this pretentious, yeah, you know, milieu where he's swimming you know, quite successfully through it. Although there is that great transition bit where he's like presenting his first piece of work and he comes in, there's a proper, he looks like Truman Capote or something. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're asking him questions and he's answering, but they, they think he's joking, you know. How do you mix your paint? In a bucket with a bucket. big stick. And they're laughing. He goes, what are they laughing at? <laughs> he, t- he turns, he, he takes an opportunity when, when he thinks nobody's looking to turn one of the pictures around to actually show one of his own paintings I rather than one of, one, of, one of Paul's. And, yeah. um, that yeah. painting of the foot, I love it. Just the, just the, just the. <laughs> Just a cartoon foot with his big toes. He's just very <laughs> piping, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're not going to go through scene by scene, but is there any other scenes you guys want to mention before we start winding this up a wee bit? Is there any other standout scenes after sort of the the you know the gallery scene and the towards the end now? Um, no, I think we've, we've covered the, the the major ones. I mean, the, as you say, in, in the cafe where he's he's joining himself into this conversation and then manages to um to to bullshit his way through it but um no it's i think there's there's a lot of little little bits in between which are quite interesting between these things is when he's you know coming off the boat and he's managed to chuck his ticket away and um you know and and his umbrella which he obviously needed um (laughs) and and as you say when he's in the street now they're getting run over by the car um, because he's sat in the middle of the road doing paintings and Mm. um that the, painting these, of, are the, these are the yeah, sides that are quite useful. But. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that painting of the Arc de Triomphe again, just fantastic. Yeah, just it's, it's just little things like that that you spot in the background of what he's actually working on. But yeah, this this just to go about this this film is um, the, the writing. Mm. It does it it does take a pop at quite a, a, a quite a few things, um, sort of pretentious. Um, Artisms, if for want of a better phrase, right. you know the sort of the the naive school of art, you know, which was probably Ellis Lowry was the the leading fit proponent of, uh, you know, he just did what he did, and it was labelled with that. And they've got him, they've got now infantilism as far as um, it goes with Tony Hancock's work and that kind of thing. That they, they they are they are taking a pop at lots of different uh, sort of bits of the art movement at the time, which I think is, is quite um, perceptive of them really in the writing. 
Oh, they certainly had their finger on the pulse with all of their writing, right through the, um, you know, the radio series, through the TV series. They were very topical. They'd pick up on certain things that, you know, were going on around the country or around the world. And, and they create a script within a week based around popular culture at the time. And the, yeah, as you say, this is a good representation of like the beatnik movement and the art movement and the coffee houses and, you know, that sort of thing that was, that was sort of visible at the time before, just before Beatlemania took over, you know. <laughs> no froth on the coffee. Yeah, what, what do you mean you don't want no froth? <laughs> yes. Oh, a cup of tea, please, dear, and ten of you. We don't do tea, only coffee. Espresso or cappuccino? No, all right, I'll have a white one with no froth. No froth? I don't like froth. Yes, half the attraction you must have froth. I don't want any froth. I want a cup of coffee. I don't want to wash me clothes in it. I've never heard of anybody who didn't want froth. Well, you have now. One white coffee, no froth. Ooh, somebody got out of bed the wrong side this morning, didn't they? And a cappuccino. No froth. No froth? That's right. No froth. And that marvellous, eh? Eight hundred quid's worth of froth in machinery here, and you don't want that. Although, it's so what you come in here for if you don't want any froth? You can get an ordinary cup of coffee anywhere. That man's chosen. Chosen. Oh, it's a shame. Ah, it's not the same. Well, one cappuccino, no froth. So, in summary, let's turn to our guest first, Mark. I mean, just give us your final thoughts and possible rating if you want to give it a rating as well, mate. Oh, this is a piece of class. Absolutely. <laughs> this this is a really good comedy that grunier over the years. It yeah. really does. I watched it with my 17-year-old daughter who's doing art. She found it funny. It Brilliant. was nothing like, you know, about this. It was it was just funny. And I think that, that might be helped because it's been an influence on later stuff like The Office and so on, which she's used to. So mm. the, the nature of the humour wasn't alien to her. Yeah. Whereas in some of the other comedies... I'm not sure she'd find it funny at all for, from this era. Um, uh, I think film comedies tend to stand up better than TV comedies, actually, in terms of dated this, actually, they, uh, in some most cases. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this really stands up. There's so many moments, and it, become, it does become a bit of a quote fest if you're not careful. Uh, we kind of done that sparingly, but, you know, not – doesn't want any froth it's just funny right That's it's just right. funny we've always said there's uh, a danger like. when you're reviewing a comedy that we could sit here for an hour and just throw quotes at each other so you have to be careful you but i think yeah. hancock's expressiveness mm -hmm. uh, was really good as well as his sort of timing and, yeah. and voice work yeah. um I, the direction was pretty solid and actually there was some interlude I'm talking about the action painting, which was actually really well orchestrated, yes. I thought, in terms of the music and so on. Um, I mean, it was pretty set-bound, wasn't it, the whole thing? Um, the only weakness of the film to me was the very last bit where he's on the uh, the, the yacht. Um, though mm -hmm. even that had its great moments. The, the dance made me laugh and stuff yeah. like that. But I just felt the whole wife uh you know running after him didn't feel quite right for this character no. uh, and i kind of missed the art the artist milieu when he <laughs> left it as well so uh, though the gallery stuff was gold as well i, yeah. I did like that the, but the, yeah great film i've got really no issues with this yeah as you say the action painting bit is a, is a standalone two or three minutes you could just lift that and just show that to somebody and say just watch this and just laugh it's, it's, mm. yeah one of the standout points um steven your thoughts and ratings sir well this is she's a, a classic um of british cinema and definitely a classic comedy and it's um as you say that it, it it's a number of different bits um sort of scenes put together in an expert way to make a, a narrative all the way through but they could be watched individually but it continues to be funny and i think it not only its influence but its continued um humor and to some extent relevance as well um in the way it's taking pop up things that are popular um but this it just gets better for me watching it to be honest um you know with the picking up on the the little lines that are almost throw away so this is one that definitely i'd you know be recommending people go out their way to to watch because it's difficult to understand how somebody could not enjoy this i think it's also something you could show anybody at any age from yes. young kids to to old men you, you know they would laugh 
somebody would find something funny in most of this movie, I think. Uh, one of the things I really like about it is the character who does what he wants to do, even when he finds everyone thinks he's terrible, he doesn't care, he's going to continue <laughs> doing that. I really like that. I really like that. For me, I mean... Funny, Hancock was more like that in real life. Oh, it? can you imagine? It have lasted longer, eh? Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, for me, I think this must have been my introduction to Tony Hancock when it was shown on the BBC in the mid-70s or the early 70s. It must have been, because I, I can remember listening to the radio shows throughout the late 70s and the 80s, and that was it. I just had to just had to digest everything I could grab. You know, I was taping the radio shows off the TV, which were off the Radio 4, and they were very few and far between before they were being released, you know. Mm. Um, and it's a comedian whose love for, you know, has never died. And amongst these radio shows that he did, I think they're on constant rotation in this house, along with The Goon Show and Round the Horn, you know, my three favourite radio comedies. But, the man's genius and the genius of the writing is evident throughout this. It's difficult for me not to give this five stars. And for anybody that hasn't seen it, I, I would certainly push it to anybody that not only appreciates British comedy, but just comedy in general. I mean, it's just, he's largely forgotten now, which is the saddest thing. Yeah, this is, this is, this is just, it's comedy of the right ship. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on that note, <laughs> I just want to just want to say one more thing. Yes, mate. this also my introduction to art. This film was when it? I was a kid. <laughs> I think is that, and I it formed my opinion of the art world, and actually, <laughs> it's not moved much since. <laughs> oh, so it's done some good watching this movie. That's brilliant. <laughs> Do you know what? I think we'll invite Mark back. Do you think so, Stephen? I think it might be. I would say so, yeah. yeah. So how about we take a little break while he has a think about what he's going to bring to us next time. See you in a second. So that was The Rebel, 1961, Tony Hancock. Mark has graciously agreed to come back, the fool that he is. I mean, he obviously enjoyed himself this morning, so he, he wants to come back and have a chat about another movie. So we'll give him the choice of what to bring, sir. So what, what are you going to tell us about next time? Right, what I would like to bring next time is one, one of, someone we've already actually mentioned in this recording, mm -hmm. uh, and it's someone I think in some ways was an influence on Tony Hancock, mm -hmm. a precursor to Tony Hancock, and that is Mr. Will Hay, who oh. I feel is also mostly forgotten, yeah. uh, even more so than Tony Hancock. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to bring what I think is probably his finest film and collaboration, which is Oh, Mr. Porter. <laughs> Long overdue, Stephen, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, it's been quite a while since we've done a film from the 30s. So, um, yeah. this you now be a, a nice um, look back at that era of filmmaking as well as um, the actual film itself. So, yeah. yeah, very much welcome. Off the top of your head, Mark, I mean, I can't remember, but is Charles Hawtrey in this one? Don't remember him being in this one. No. I mean, it's it's more Marriott and, and Grand Moffat uh, yeah. and the various officious people that I have to deal with yeah. that seem to reoccur in in Will Hay films. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I, I can't remember. It may be. Yeah, because I, I haven't seen this in about ten years. Oh, I watched it a couple of years ago, but I know the very young Charles Hawtrey was like schoolboys, wasn't he, in, in a lot of the early Will Hayes and stuff. Yeah, and I think, well, in a lot of these films, you see a young Charles Hawtrey or a young John Mills or a young yeah. um, Peter Cushing. It of depends, course, you know, yeah. things like that. So well, we're looking for Marion Stone, really. Well, <laughs> yeah, you, you can guarantee Victor Harrington's in there somewhere. We'll have to have a look. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be, oh, Mr. Porter. In a few weeks' time, when you come back, sir, it's been absolutely marvellous you being here again this Sunday morning. Always a pleasure to have you here. You are welcome any time. And just thank you for being here, mate. Thanks very much, Mark. Oh, no, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Very briefly, yeah. very briefly, um, 
there'll be a miss of me not to mention your podcast. It's the good, the bad, and the odd available the everywhere. Good, the bad, and the odd. Yes, uh, we cut Sam and I cover all sorts of movies and sometimes TV shows. Uh, one we're doing interestingly at the minute. We're cramming James Bond. Ooh. We're trying to get through all the James Bond before the next film comes out. We still got eight to go, and it's out <laughs> in about six weeks. So you we're uh, we, we're having trouble there. Um, but yeah, we're cramming James Bond. So we'll probably be pretty much James Bond for the next two months. Okay. Um, but I have other stuff going on that's on that main feed too. That people who like TV shows, anthology. TV shows yes. would also like to. So I've got several things going on. On that feed, though, you only need the one feed. All fantastic shows, all different versions of your Stephen King stuff, the anthologic, the X-Files stuff, everything you do, mate, absolutely fantastic. We're mm. covering From Russia With Love in a couple of weeks, Stephen, aren't we, as well, funny enough? So. We are, yes. Yeah. We'll have a listen to your show and uh, we'll take some notes, I think, might be the answer. Yeah, we'll steal all the best bits of <laughs> <laughs> So that would give you about 30 seconds. Um, Yes, 30 (laughs) seconds more than I would have anyway. And they will wing it for the rest. It'll be fine. Stephen, thanks to you for being here today, sir, my friend. My pleasure. And to the pair of you. Yeah, and the pair of you. Cheers, guys. We'll see you both very, very soon. Okay, bye. Take care. Absolute shah. A positive shah. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir.